0: Finish chapter five today as we take a look at this passage. And as we do, above all else, I just want you to have this key word in mind as we look at this passage that really has been throughout the majority of chapter five that we've studied in the Sermon on the Mount series is relationships. Relationships. In fact, I thought I was so clever whenever I was working on this sermon this week. I was like, I want this to focus on relationships, our relationships must have, all of these different ideas. And then I looked at the title. Uh, above verse 21 in my translation, and it says, personal relationships. I was like, wow, Stephen, you're real. You're really intelligent and very creative. Uh, I just took it from the uh, the Bible translation of what the topic of our time should look like today. So we're going to be looking at relationships and what we must have. And for All of us, I I want you to know that every single one of you, as we've been talking about, whether it's been the issue of murder and anger or adultery and lust, whatever it may be that we've seen so far over the last couple of weeks, is that there is value intrinsically with you and the person sitting next to you. And every single one of us has to interact with people. We're not designed or created to live in isolation. It's not bad for us to have solitude from time to time. I think that's a healthy thing. But isolation was never intended. Even from the beginning, you see that our our God, uh, the Trinity, three and one, one and three, is is this God of of, of community and relationship. And, And we even see there in the beginning of Genesis that when God creates Adam, he sees that it's not good for Adam to be alone, and so he has Eve created. And what we find is that throughout all of Scripture, Is this pursuit of God coming after us because he doesn't have to he chooses to he wants you he loves you he values you and as a result of doing so we see that I would say we're designed and created uh, above all else to to glorify God and then and then beyond that is the way in which that happens is that he created you to be in a relationship with him and he created you to be in relationship with one another and as we've studied this passage, I think we've seen that if we want our, our relationships here on this earth with our fellow man and woman, our, our friends, even our enemies, at the heart of that, at the center of that, has to be Christ in order for us to navigate the relationships that we have. Because sometimes uh, people are interesting, and sometimes people are fun, and sometimes people are difficult. But we all have to interact and engage with, with people. And so, Today, we're going to see Jesus again coming back to the forefront of caring about people. He wants us to do uh, the same. And so uh, if you're taking notes, the first thing that we're going to see today is that our relationships must have within them truth. Our relationships must have truth. And we're going to see that here. Look at verse 33 of Matthew chapter 5. It says, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oaths at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond these is, is of evil. Left to ourselves and just kind of our own devices, we tend to struggle to tell the truth, at least consistently. (laughs) We tend to like to exaggerate just a little bit, give a little white lie to kind of diffuse the situation. But we sometimes, again, left to ourselves and our own devices, we tend to have a hard time of constantly, consistently being truth tellers. But think about the people that you enjoy. I, I enjoy serious people, I enjoy a good, a good jokester, my dad is always just joking around, and having a good time, I enjoy the intelligent people, but all of these people, at some point in time, I've probably bent the truth a little bit with them, and they've probably bent the truth a little bit with me, but what I find that the closest of relationships that I have, and I would imagine this is probably similar for you, are those who are authentic, those who are very real with me. And transparent with me, someone that I can trust, someone that I can speak, the, 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 the issues of my life and of my heart, and, and when I look back over the course of my life, whether it's my relationship with Tiffany, or whether it's some of my closest friendships that I've had over the years, those that are dearest to me, those specifically those men of honor, are those men of integrity, those men of character, because I could trust them. They're trustworthy, they're truth-tellers. And above all else, in this section, in verses 33 through 37, let that law of truth just kind of resonate and reign over you that, that you would go, yeah, uh, I, I also like people who tell the truth, so let, let me be one who heralds the truth and speaks the truth in, in situations and in relationships that, that I have. Now, in verse 33... Jesus has done the thing that we've seen three other times before, and we're going to see it three more times today, where he makes the statement, you have heard that it was said. And what he does here is he's not specifically quoting from a specific Old Testament passage as he has before. He's actually kind of brought a composite of a bunch of different passages and some rabbinical teachings kind of all together as one that would have been familiar to them. It was based on Old Testament tradition about oaths. In fact, there in verse 34, but I say to you, make no oath at all. Some of your translations may not use the word oath. Uh, It might use the word make no swear or make no vow. Uh, That's the idea that's going on there. But for our purposes, to be able to kind of be on the same page, uh, when we hear the word oath, this will be our working definition. An oath, biblically speaking, was making a statement and then calling God to witness to the truth of that statement and then involving a curse from God if, in fact, you're not telling the truth. (laughs) That's the oath. You're in a relationship with someone, and you want them to believe you so much that you're saying, I I, I promise you, (laughs) on God himself, this is the truth. That's what you're trying to convey because you want them to believe you in order for uh, the relationship to continue or for maybe even some kind of interaction to continue with this person And so the question becomes, when Jesus says, but I say that you make no oath at all, what do we do with that? Because apparently the question should be, can we make an oath or a vow? Well, this is where it gets interesting when you interpret Scripture with Scripture. In the book of Hebrews chapter 6, you can read it another time because we, we had a lot. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 6, God makes an oath unto himself. So God makes an oath in Hebrews chapter 6, referring to the oath that he's going to have when instituting the new covenant. And we're, we're glad that he did that, aren't we? <laughs> that he instituted the new covenant and promised, or oath, this is going to happen. And, and I oath upon myself because there's no greater authority to oath upon than me. And so we see that God makes an oath. But in the Old Testament, we see that Abraham, Isaac... Jacob, Jonathan, David, so many men of God are making oaths in the Old Testament when they would covenant with someone, that they wanted the truthfulness of their statement to be verified and, and uh, to, to be verified by the authority of calling upon God to witness, to say that it's true, to say, if I'm not telling the truth, God is my witness, then, then I'm going to be cursed. In fact, in Numbers chapter 30, we see God even explaining what you need to do when you make an oath. So, It's interesting. Even Jesus, the night of his trial in the book of Matthew, you can read this and the night of his trial, Jesus, remember, he stays absolutely silent. Remember that silent before his persecutors, as we read in Isaiah 53. But at this moment, towards like the end of that, that, that mockery of a trial, the high priest calls upon Jesus. And specifically, it says the high priest adjured or charged Jesus to basically under oath, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus says, it's as you say. He's responding by saying, you've adjured me. You've basically charged me under oath. I'm going to tell you the truth. This is the truth. He takes an oath. Paul in Romans 9, Acts 18 makes an oath. An angel in the book of Revelation chapter 10 makes an oath. So what's going on? Now, those are people from Scripture, but those of you that are married, did you make vows? I believe that you did. I remember just again the other night I got to marry that sweet couple, and they made these vows to one another, having to hold from this day forward, for richer for poor, and sickness and health. There's other things in there. I can't remember them right now. But you remember those vows that you made before witnesses and before God? And then you read this, and this is where sometimes people will take this to say, I can never make an oath if I go even to like the public court system. I can't swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, because this would be violating Matthew chapter 5. And yet we see God making an oath, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jonathan, David, Jesus, angels, Paul making oaths. So what are we to do with this? Well, I think what Jesus is doing is Jesus is wanting to do what he's been doing this whole Sermon on the Mount. You've been jacking up... (laughs) the law that is good and it's been lowered and it's been basically muddled down to such a point that your word even when you stick it to an oath means nothing let's get back to the heart of the matter that you would be truth tellers in fact for a first century Jewish person hearing this, they would have been familiar with the oath process of what it is to, to, to give an oath. In fact, I found this. It said, Jewish teachers and leaders invented a system by which they could determine whether a vow had to be kept. So they had kind of like this side book of, well, if you make an oath in the name of God, well, you better beware. Then if you don't follow through, you're going to be cursed. But if you make an oath in the name of the temple and you break it, you'll be fine. It's not cool. It's not good, but you'll be okay. Or if you make an oath, maybe upon the earth, again, that's fine because you're not using God's name. You're not invoking the name of the Lord. You shouldn't do it, but this is a way that you can kind of get out of that situation of being able to not be a man or woman of your word. And what Jesus is saying in verse 34, when he says, make no oath at all, you got to continue the sentence. It's not just make no oath at all. It's make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Or by the earth, for as the footstool of God. Or by Jerusalem, for as the city of the great king. He's saying, do you not know God is omnipresent and that all of this is his? And that if you make an oath upon anything that he has created, that you may not be invoking specifically his name, but you are invoking his creation. And you're trying to weasel out to where you can basically get out of a business dealing or out of some kind of relationship or some kind of marriage or some kind of covenant that you've made. What they had invented and that Jesus is disgusted with, and we should be as well, they had invented that if you change the words and use your semantics in just the right way, you get a get-out-of-oath-free card, <laughs> just like Monopoly, just, you know, not gel. So in verse 34, I would say this is <laughs> i got to be careful of this. This is kind of my translation, if you will. This is Jesus saying, stop swearing like that. Stop making oaths like this what's intended to kind of bind people together in a solemn or serious occasion, you're using trivially and flippantly. It's lost the heart and the gravity of the situation. I read one commentator, and it, he was bold. He's saying, Jesus is saying, you are liars to the core. <laughs> I don't know. I don't thought it was funny. Then your system you've set up for yourself only betrays the reality of your rotten hearts. Stop making oaths in such a manner to try to cover up your lies. So if and when you do make an oath, I know a lot of our our, our young adults that that I've visited with, they they look forward to getting married. Don't be nervous about, can I make the vow? Be serious about making the vow to your soon-to-be spouse. But recognize the solemnness of it, the, the occasion of it. Don't be haphazard or casual when you're invoking God into this. And when Jesus comes along and he says, on those solemn, significant, serious occasions, yeah, an oath may be called for in that moment. But most of the time, I don't know about you, on a day-to-day basis, it's not generally too serious or too solemn of an occasion. It's just, I'm going to the store. And Tiffany's like, can you pick something up and I'm like, yeah, 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 I'll pick it up. I come home. I had no intention of picking that up because I didn't want to spend the money on that because I think it's too expensive. But I'm just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm just not telling the truth. It's saying on the mundane, everyday occasions that you're living your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, when you say you're going to do something, do it. When you say you're not going to do something, okay. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be a man or woman of truth. And an example of this. How often have you visited with someone, and some of you, I know you're perfect at this, but sometimes I I struggle. You visit with someone, and the way that you're looking to kind of, you know, transition out of that, and some of you are going to be wondering if I did this to you, I promise you, I'm working on it. And you're like, all right, I'll be praying for you. I'll be praying for you. And then you walk off, and you're like, okay, what's for supper? How often have we used the phrase or just that vernacular within the life of the church as almost kind of like a way to, you know, I'll be praying for you. Really, it's like, I care for you, I'm thinking of you, but are we following through with actually praying for someone? So I've gotten to the point now where some of you have received this, where I've texted you, <laughs> and you're going through something, and I will even say, I'm, I'm literally praying for you right now, because I want it to be to be communicated that I'm not just using just the slang of our time, the jargon of our time of praying for you. It's like, no, I'm praying for you, and, and I don't want you to just think it's just words. It's true. I'm I'm wanting to cry out to the creator on your behalf because I care for you and I want you to know that, not because I get any kind of pat on the back or brownie points, it's because I care for you because what Jesus is at the heart of is people, that we would care for one another and have enough respect for one another to tell the truth to one another. So for our relationships, I think to be as sound and as healthy as we want them to be, our relationships must have truth. That's number one. Number two, our relationships must have self-control. Restraint, not retaliation, not revenge, self-control. Look at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek and turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, this is that classic passage of, Dad, can I defend myself in a fight at school? It's a great passage of Scripture. We're going to dive into it for just a little bit. What we tend to do as human beings, you hit me, I will hit you back so hard, and I'm going to pop you from the other side. You won't even see it coming. You will not hit me. (laughs) I kind of got like an amen back there, I think, on that one. Um, But we do. We tend to say, no, unacceptable. You've offended me. We tend to take it too far when it comes to dealing out the proper, if you will, punishment for the crime committed against you. Because for a lot of us, the greatest offense that anyone can do is offend me. Sometimes we don't even think it's so much offending God. It's you have offended me. You have hurt me. And so I'm coming for you full force. Some of you might go with the aggressive approach. Where you're just like, huh, all right, you slap me, uh, just right in the throat, right in the throat. <laughs> Others of you are like, I'm not that aggressive, but I'm passive aggressive. And so, you know, as we're walking around and we're talking to people, I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know that guy? I think he quoted Hitler the other day. And you're just doing everything you can to just kind of throw that person under the bus. Or you're just super passive and you're just talking about them behind their back, trying to ruin their reputation, character, and their financial stability because you're going to get yours, you're going to get your revenge you're going to retaliate. We have a hard time with that. I can remember when, uh, when I was in college, we were working at this camp and it was um, uh, the boys camp. We did an overnight trip. So the boys are over here in the West 40 pasture. The girls are on this side. So we have a, you know, 40 acres in between us. And uh, the girls thought it was wise to prank us that night. And so they make their way over to our camp. But this was their era, ladies. Listen to me. You don't prank too early that leaves us too much time to retaliate. And so they came over and they did some stuff like kind of woke us up, banged on some pot and pans. And then as guys, what did we do? To this day, it's known as the night that the guys just took it way, way, way too far. We went to their camp. We might have stolen sleeping bags and pillows and thrown them into the creek and all kinds of other things. And we thought, oh, this is just fun. And it's like, no, we have gotten out of control. There were some repercussions the next day. (laughs) So, but in my defense, bound up within the human heart, my heart as a 20-year-old is justice. (laughs) We crave justice. But the problem is is that we pervert justice into vengeance and into retaliation. We don't want to just retaliate evenly. We want to go above and beyond that measure. And Jesus is saying, you're you're completely taking out of context this passage and this verse that's familiar to, to all of you in that Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 38. He says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They've heard that. You've heard that. We, we quote that thing all the time. We see it, I see it on the news all the time about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But people have taken it so far out of context that they don't realize it has everything to do with justice, not vengeance or any kind of feud or retaliation. What God was doing is he was saying, if a crime is committed against you, you're giving them what is due. But by Jesus' time, it became a license for vengeance, a vendetta, and biblical permission that I get to have a grudge because the Bible says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If you go back to the Old Testament and you read the book of Exodus, great book, go read it. Exodus chapter 20, God is instituting the law, specifically the moral law, the moral law between God and between man. Think of the Ten Commandments. But in chapter 21 of Exodus through chapter 23, God introduces the civil law. And with the civil law, this is where we'll find, and throughout Old Testament Scripture, you'll find three different times where the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, every single one of those times that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth are brought up is brought up with civil matters. That means a judge is involved, a magistrate is involved, authorities within the community are involved. It's not you as an individual going Batman on somebody and being a vigilante and saying, retaliation and justice will be mine. It's like, no. Left to your own devices, like with truth, left to our own devices, we tend to have a hard time telling the truth consistently. Left to our own devices, we tend to struggle to actually not retaliate when we've been harmed or hurt or offended. When God put this in place, he was actually doing this because, again, he cares about people, the whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He's saying the point of the punishment is to fit the crime, no more and no less. It was designed to restrain us because he knew within us, our hearts, we just want vengeance. So he goes on in verse 39 and he says, when he says in verse 39, this has brought about confusion for some, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Some people have taken that and been like, well, that means I just need to be a doormat and people walk all over me. It's not what he's saying. Because for every single one of us, we do resist evil. God has even instituted the government to have laws in place in order to protect us and to protect those who would do evil against us. So we have government within our laws. We have in our churches, hopefully we are trying to resist evil by, by champion purity within the life of the church. And the same thing with relationships that we would want evil to be stamped out by even confronting people. We see Jesus in the Gospel of John chapter 2. We also see him in Mark chapter 11 getting a whip and clearing out some temple because evil was taking place. It's not saying that we see evil and we just turn a blind eye. Again, it's going back to that issue, to the heart of the matter of you guys, Jewish people in that context, and for us today, you've taken some biblical words and sayings and you've missed the heart of it. So we got to get back to where You have that self-control, that restraint. I don't know if we have time for this, but I'm going to make time because it's only 1037. So in verse 39, when he says, do not slap someone, to slap someone, we're not talking about a punch, we're talking about a backhand. What that backhand meant was, this isn't so much of a fight or someone's hurt you. This is your dignity has been offended. To be backhanded, backhand someone today. I promise you, they're going to be offended. Their dignity is going to be hurt. It's it's, it's a slight to backhand someone. You're not even kind enough, man enough to be like, I'm going to punch you in the mouth. It's no backhand. It's how little I think of you. It's disrespectful. Your dignity is on the line. And so in that day and time, man, you violate my dignity I'm coming after you. And he says, turn your other cheek. It's just your dignity. He goes on, he says, not only about your dignity, but in verse 40, when he talks about someone wants to sue you and take your shirt and have your coat also, he's talking not about dignity here, but about your security. Your coat was your last means of security. You don't have a coat. <laughs> you're you're, you're going to be hurting in the elements and with the weather. So Jesus is even saying, man, man, For you to think that you gotta go and have your vengeance and retaliation, if it means losing your security, it's worth losing your security rather than being a man of vengeance. Going on to verse 41, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too, has everything to do with your liberty. This was Roman soldiers telling someone in a Jewish context under Roman rule and reign, they had the right and authority as Romans to say, hey, Jewish person, take my backpack, you gotta carry it one mile out the city. That was a law, that was standard, you had to do that. And what Jesus is saying, no, 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 don't just take it one mile, go two miles. Go above and beyond, even if your liberty is at stake, even if your freedom is at stake. You live to the letter of the law, but what about beyond that? Would you go above and beyond the average? Verse 42, when he says, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you, he's talking about your property. (laughs) So he says, your dignity, your security, your liberty, your property, don't hold on to this stuff so tightly that you lose the moment to love on people. Because when we love people, especially the people who are going to sue us and slap us and people are going to take our coats and force us to go a mile and that we would go too, and those who would take our property from us. These sound like enemies, at least those who would be antagonistic. And he's saying, man, you want to change their life. It's not by retaliation, it's by love. That's how we're going to change the world. Not looking to get your justice, but looking to allow God to do what he's going to do. Again, be careful with this. It doesn't mean that we allow ourselves to be doormats, but there's a lot of wisdom, I think, in this of being able to evaluate a situation and go, you know what? It's just a coat. It means a lot to me but it's just a coat? Is it worth going after someone else created in the imago Deo, the image of God? Because they have value. They just don't know Jesus. Some of you might ask the question, because I asked the question as I was studying this, okay, Jesus, how do I get this restraint? He created you for relationship with him. When you enter into a relationship with Jesus, by the confession of your sin and placing your faith in him, we know through scripture that the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence resident within us. And we know from Galatians chapter 5, where Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, that the very last one he says that you have as, far, as part of the fruit of the Spirit is you receive self-control. You have the ability to have restraint and control, and we need that. We must have that in our personal day-to-day relationships. Otherwise, we're just flying off the handle, and that tends to escalate the drama and the anger and the tension as opposed to de-escalating it, and we want these relationships to be healthy. So, number three, we've seen that if our relationships must have truth, they must have self-control. Number three, they must have love, not hate or indifference, but love. Look at verse 43. It says, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So, in this instance, if we're left to our own devices, if we're left to ourselves, we struggle to love those who are different from us, and especially those that don't agree with me, who are antagonistic towards me, who are mean to me, or my family and friends, people who hate us, enemies. Now, in verse 43, it says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You shall love your neighbor in the Bible (laughs) and hate your enemy, not in the Bible. But again, this was rabbinical tradition that had built up within the Jewish just teaching in that that day and time, that this was something that was acceptable, that this was something that you were able to do, because if you are hurt, you have the right... To defend yourself. It really ties into what we just studied. But again, it's that line of justice versus vengeance. Justice is good. That's a good thing that God has given us within our hearts as human beings, but we want to take it a little bit too too far. And if we're not careful, when we get hurt, what happens is hate takes root within that hurt, within our heart, and then our heart develops bitterness. And when we become bitter, when we become jaded towards that person and that relationship, And I'm not saying that the offense that maybe you're thinking of right now, it was. It was offensive. It was wrong. It was evil. It was abusive. We're not justifying the offense at all. But when we allow bitterness to root up within our heart, somehow we think, I'm going to get back at them now because I'm bitter towards them and I'm going to give them the, the cold eye. It might affect them some, but it far more devastatingly affects you and me. When we allow bitterness to take hold within our heart, when we allow that to reign, because it turns us just into angry people, It, it doesn't reinforce the hurt towards the other. It reinforces the pain that is within you because we're unable to let go and to forgive. So when he goes into this and he says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, some people have read this and go, that sounds great, but that seems difficult. Is this just kind of pie-in-the-sky, flowery language of love everyone? We love love, but I love love. We're going to be just all about love. And Jesus is like, it's it's not pie-in-the-sky kind of theology. This is what we are called to do and who we are called to be as followers of Christ, that we would love even our enemies. So the question may be posed of, well, who's my enemy? (laughs) We tend to have a few categories. We have our friends, family members. uh, We have those that we just are kind of acquaintances with. Maybe like you see them at Walmart, like they're the cashier. You don't really know them. And then you have your enemies. And with this, we're like, I'm good with this one. I love them. Well, I'm kind of indifferent to these because why why would I love them? These guys, sure, I love them, but really deep down, don't like them, hate them. And so what Jesus is saying, when you look across that spectrum of your relationships, it's not supposed to be love and difference. Hate It's supposed to be love, love, love. Regardless of what that stage or depth of a relationship looks like, it's to be love your friend, love the, those who are indifferent to you, those that you don't really know, and love those that are even antagonistic towards you. Some would say, well then, As a christian it feels odd to say that i have enemies should i have enemies well according to this it doesn't seem wrong to have enemies in fact i would say if you don't have any enemies it might just reveal that you're not really standing for anything because it's not that we go out intentionally to be offensive that's not who we are as christians but because of who we are in Christ, we know that if they hated Christ, as he says in John, they're going to also hate us because of who we live for and who is at the center of our life. And if he's at the center of our life and he's coming out of us, that's going to be offensive. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that for you as a Christian, did you know that you smell? Every one of you, you smell. Some of you smell good, some of you stink and it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that when we're around people there are some people that we give off the fragrance or the aroma of life but for other people you actually give off the fragrance of death you stink because you're it's like putting a spotlight on someone and going you need Christ And I'm not coming as judge and juror. I'm coming as a friend who loves you, even as an enemy. And because I'm living a life that may be different from you and you don't like it because you feel like I'm condemning or judging you, that's not the case. I'm just wanting to live my life for Christ. But sometimes that can be offensive and you find it repugnant and repulsive. I'm not going to apologize for it, but I'm going to love you through it. And I'm going to continue to show you and display the love of Christ. And so we want to love. We want to love everyone. We do want to love the world and we go, yeah, I like that, I love love, I hate hate. But can I just tell you as a culture, and even in the church, sometimes we kind of like hate. Sometimes we kind of enjoy it, we kind of gobble it up. Look at your social media feed. Do you, you're just kind of scrolling through there, you're looking on the news and you're like, oh man, those guys. Do you realize that the news, they know what it is that you're watching? And they found that the good news stories The positive things, a little squirrel, like, you know, skiing behind, like, the boat years ago. Might get lots of plays, lots of clicks, but people don't keep coming back to that. They want to see the outrage. We gobble it up like candy. Mm, What did that guy say today? How can I be offended today? We have to fight and resist that culture within our culture of going, no, 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 no. I don't want to continue to be fueled by and driven by the hate that's within the culture and the offensiveness that's within the culture. I want to see evil for what it is, resist it, hate it, denounce it, but I'm going to go forward, and even with my enemies, I'm, I'm, I'm going to love them. In fact, even Jesus said, do you remember the Beatitude sermon or series that we went through in the months of uh, uh, the summer months? He says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Even there, he's saying there's going to be people that are coming after you because you are in Christ. So what are we to do with those that are our enemies? Well, I think he gives two very practical things. In verse 44, he says, love your enemies. Well, what does that look like? He says, and pray for those who persecute you. Pray. It's hard to hate someone when you're praying for them. Notice he didn't say pray against your enemies. Some of you are like, I'll pray an imprecatory prayer just like David did in the book of Psalms. No. We pray for those who would persecute us. We would lift them up and say, God, what's going to change them isn't going to be my retaliation or my clever quip. It's going to be the love of Jesus demonstrated and displayed out of my life and into theirs. He also says, look at verse 47. I found this in a, in a study. I thought it was really interesting. You can just easily glance by it. He says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do that. This idea of, I think, a simple way in which we can demonstrate that we love others. Say hi. <laughs> Actually demonstrate that you recognize and see them. When, when, you, when you do go to the, the grocery store and you have the chance to engage with the cashier, even though you may never see that person again, Put your phone down. Give them eye contact. Let them know you're a human being and I see you. Hi. Because <laughs> it can make a, a huge difference. Because think of how many of you that have maybe worked in, in, in that kind of industry of, of, uh, uh, where, where consumers are coming in or if you're, you've ever worked in the food industry, how often that you don't even get eye contact from the, the customers or from the, the patrons coming to that restaurant. And you're just like, I just want to grab them. I just want to say, do you see me? I'm right here. I'm right here. Like, I'm a human being with our anybody, those that we're indifferent towards, those that are just kind of passerbys, uh, we give them the dignity of I see you and I see your humanity. And you say, it seems like a small thing, but I want to challenge you this week. Say hi to 10 people you don't know. Say hi to 10 people. You're going to lead from here and you're going to go, that seems stupid. Hi to 10 people. How's that going to change the world? Did you, have you tried it? You're gonna get to the first two people. I said hi to the person at the gas station, said hi to the person at Walmart. He's not gonna check up on me. It's not like there's gonna be a quiz next week of like how many people would you say hi to, put it in the plate, and we're gonna we're not gonna do that. It's gonna be on you, but say hi to ten people. And yeah, it's probably gonna be weird and awkward, especially you're like, my personality isn't to say hi, I'm not super outgoing. I don't care. Say hi, greet people. Even the Gentiles do it. Most of you Gentiles. So let's do what we're called to do. Let's greet some people. Let's actually give them eye contact and show them the humanity that they have. Do you, do you realize why Chick-fil-A is so successful? They engage with people. And as I mentioned to you last year, some of you will probably remember this, some of you haven't, weren't with us at the time. But last year when we were kind of in that mode of like, we, we, are we going forward as a church or are we not? What are we going to be doing? We said we got to engage more people. we got to be intentional about engaging people that we know people that we just happen to pass by. We need to be engaging and wanting to hear from them and asking that question, what's the biggest thing just going on in your life right now and listen to what they say? And for maybe the first time that week, that individual feels heard and feels seen and there's like, someone notices me. Because you know what we long for as human beings? We long to be valued. We long to be loved. We long to be wanted. And so often we go through the week and we wonder, does anybody care? Is anybody out there? Does anybody see me? And we we are the representatives of God, the ambassador to say, God sees you because I see you, and I am the hands and feet of God. I want you to be seen, even if you're my enemy, because then you'll be changed. And even if we just greeted, we have about forty-ish or so, fifty-ish or so uh, here here at Mission Point at this point in time. I'm gonna go with forty. I did the math. Don't check it. Um, if all forty of us, between now, today's October tenth and December tenth, two months before Christmas, if we all said hi to a hundred people within the population of Murfreesboro, just our our sweet little group, we would have engaged and greeted just over three percent of the population. And my hope is that as we grow, we would continue to have that mindset. And I found this one study that was so interesting. It said, if you can get 10% of the population, if you can get that 10% to be all in for the cause of something, you change the culture in that place and in that city. What if we are saying, well, you know, we're, we're a smaller church. We don't even have our own facility. Like, what, what, what could we possibly do? Greet somebody. Give them the humanity that they need look them in the eyes, and then continue that conversation, engage with them, and just see what God may, may do in our lives as individuals and as, as a church. Last thing. So our relationships must have truth, self-control, love. Last one, may not expect it, but is perfection. Like, perfection? That's, that's not possible. I know. Look at verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, It's at this point that those on the mountainside of the Sermon on the Mount would be like, everything you've said so far, Jesus, is really powerful and very convicting, and I don't even really know what to do with it. And now you say i got to be perfect as God? It's hopeless. Like, what am I supposed to do? And Jesus is kind of just going, exactly. For you to be in relationship with God, you must have God. For you to enter the kingdom of heaven, which is so much at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, you must have God. You can't figure this out on your own. You can't do enough on this on your own. And what he does is he goes through these six different things from anger, uh, murder and anger, adultery and and lust, divorce and love, oath and integrity, uh, retaliation and self-control and loving your enemy he goes through all of these and he's basically saying if none of these stepped on your toes as an area that you struggle with because maybe you have a hard time hating with someone or maybe you've had the issue of your relationship or uh with with lust or maybe with anger deep within you and some people might like the rich young ruler go i got all that covered jesus i'm good what else do you got and he closes it out and he goes okay be perfect you be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect Because this is all about entering the kingdom of heaven. That's what they're interested in. So if one of these six aren't your struggle, (laughs) be perfect. Impossible. he's saying exactly. Now when he says perfect here, I don't think he's referring to sinlessness because I don't think he would be teaching on sinlessness if he's going to teach in chapter 6 in a couple of weeks that we're going to look at why we pray for forgiveness of sins. But what I do think he is saying here is that we need to be beyond reproach and we need someone who can make that possible. We need the righteousness of God and it's gonna be found through the imputed righteousness of Jesus and his sacrifice upon the cross. And what we find is in, the accord- in, in accordance with the rest of the canon of scripture, we know that the truth of the matter is is that if you are in Christ, where you sit right now, if Christ is Lord of your life, you, though you still got your flesh and you're struggling, you are perfect. And everything God wants of you is found and accessed through him. What you need is wrapped up in him. Some of you may know of the uh, early, early church father by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was 86 years old. At that time, he was still the bishop or the pastor of Smyrna. He actually learned under, under the apostle John. And Polycarp, at an old age, was basically being hunted down by the Roman authorities because he was too much of a trailblazer and a maverick and a revolutionary because he kept talking about this guy named Jesus and he wouldn't bend the knee to Caesar. So at the age of 86, Polycarp would live out in the country, and those who were seeking to capture him, they kept getting closer and closer and his friends kept moving him around. He was just evading capture. One day, Polycarp finally said, "You know what? I'm tired of running. This is the will of the Lord." So he stayed put and his captors arrived there at his home. And as he came down the stairs, it says that Polycarp met his enemies with a kind and friendly greeting. I thought that was interesting. And in fact, he asked them, he said, you know, this is my version, you know, you guys have been traveling a long time trying to find me and you look exhausted. Can I make you a meal? To his persecutors, to his enemies. Not what they were expecting. They've hunted down plenty of other people before, never treated like this. And he says, while you guys eat, would you do me the courtesy? Could I go upstairs and pray for a while? Give me one hour. They're like, all right, go ahead. He goes up there and he prays. And it's said that they could actually hear him praying for them downstairs. And he begins to pray and spend that time with the Lord. And he comes down and he says, all right. So they take Polycarp and they get him to the hill the, just there on the uh, the. On like a mountain area to where it's overlooking the city, and they can see the arena where they would take people like Polycarp to be taken to the arena to be be killed as a show and display and some kind of entertainment. But as they get there, the chief magistrate meets Polycarp there and has Polycarp come up into his chariot, and they begin to talk. And this is what the chief magistrate said to him. He says, in order to get—this is what he's trying to do, to get him to denounce Jesus as Lord— He says, Polycarp, what harm is it to say, Lord Caesar? He promises Polycarp his freedom, his life, if he would swear Caesar, revile and deny Christ. And he answered these (laughs) with the truth. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any harm. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior who hath saved me? And with that, the chief magistrate kicked Polycarp out of the chariot, harm something even perhaps broke his leg and then they began to proceed to take him to the arena once he was taken to the arena he was tied up upon a stake with a wood pile around him and again he was given the opportunity if he would denounce christ in front of his enemies in front of his persecutors and once again he greets them and once again he speaks the truth in love towards them and this is what he replies thou threatens me with a fire which will perhaps burn for an hour And then soon go out. But thou art ignorant of the fire of the judgment of God, which is prepared and reserved for the everlasting punishment and torment of the ungodly. But why do you delay? Bring on the beasts, or the fire, or whatever you may choose. Thou shalt not, either by them, move me to deny Christ, my Lord and my Savior. And at that moment, they lit the fire. He got burnt up a little bit, but it wasn't enough. It began to go out. And so they take a steel sword and they pierce him through. And according to Fox's book of martyrs, it says, his body tasted the flames and the steel of a sword, but he never tasted the eternal punishment of hell for his sins because he had a crown of life. Why is it worth loving your enemy? Well, because Jesus did. He loved you and he loved me. While we were yet sinners, antagonistic towards the things of God, Christ died for us. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? The question might be, is how can a man like Polycarp do that? I think he has an eternal perspective. He hears the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, that your reward is in heaven, even if you're persecuted. His focus is his reward, that is Christ and his relationships with his fellow man. He lived out the law of truth that we saw today, the law of non-retaliation, which we saw today. He lived out the law of love, which we saw today. And above all else, he really lived out that passage when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment of all? And he says, love God with everything you have. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Even here at Mission Point, one of our mottos, if you will, is that we would love God, we would love people, and we would proclaim Christ. Christ. Short, pithy, three little statements. Love God, love people, proclaim Christ. This week, how can you live that out? How can you practically live out this week that I will love God, I will love people, and proclaim Christ? Maybe, maybe, it might just be as simple and as silly as praying for those around you and meaning it and not just saying it. And maybe even just greeting those and giving them the dignity to look them in the eye and see you are a human valuable because you are created in the image of god so this morning if you are a christian will you hand over the reins of your life to jesus that control that we so desire in every aspect let the holy spirit control you even as offended or as hurt as you may have been from some person or some persecutor or some enemy Will we allow the Holy Spirit to let us, or to allow the Holy Spirit that he would be in control of our lives and we would experience true restraint and self-control? For others of you, maybe you're online, you're watching, or maybe you're in this room and you're just wondering and you're just saying, I'm, I'm unsure <laughs> about this issue of perfection. I know myself well enough to know that I am not perfect. But again, Jesus is pointing again and again to himself, that he's going to live the life that we couldn't live, perfection. And then at the end, he's gonna die a death that we deserved. Because while we were sinners, he died for us. That's how much he loved us. God demonstrated such a great love for you. If you're watching online or if you're in this room and you wanna know the love of God and the perfection of Christ in your life, Then you've got to come to him on his terms, and that's through faith in Jesus, and he will save you. And so in just a moment, we're going to sing, but as we do each and every week, the most important thing you need to do is respond how God leads you. Again, it might be writing something, a prayer request that you have for someone. I said I was going to pray for that guy or that gal, and I didn't. I'm going to write it down. It's going to be an offering to the Lord. That'll be my act of worship before we leave. For others of you, maybe you would like to just come and pray with me. I would love, I'll stand here and I'll I'll pray with you about maybe someone that you're struggling with in a relationship and you want to love them, but it's hard. So Father, as we enter into a time of response, I pray that that's what we do. Help us not to go through the motions of thinking of the next thing and just uttering words out of our mouths, Lord, but that we would respond to you and what you would have us to do in this time. Help us to evaluate and to examine, are we men and women of integrity and truth? Are we men and women who allow justice to be done by you? Are we men and women who love? And are we found to be perfect in Christ because we know Christ? I pray that that's the case for all of us here today, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.